Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we discuss oxygenation targets and acute hypoxic respiratory failure. My name is Bogustin Asmussen. I'm an anesthesiologist and an intensivist. I'm also a researcher focusing on clinical research and acute lung injury. And I'm a sponsor of the Hot ICU trial, which has just been published in New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Paul Young. I'm an intensive, I'm an intensive care specialist from Wellington in, in New Zealand. And I'm a clinical researcher at the Medical Research Institute of New Zealand. Um, I'm interested in research and everything in intensive care and have dabbled in the oxygen uh, sphere. Uh, so uh, it's a pleasure to be here talking to you. And that's the pleasure to have both of you on the podcast. Um, today we'll be discussing an article that was in the April issue of the NEJM entitled Lower or High Oxygen Asian targets for acute hypoxic respiratory failure. And Paul, I'm hoping you can set the stage for us. Um, why is it so important to determine optimal oxygen targets in patients with acute hypoxic respiratory failure? Well, I think fundamentally the reason why it's important is that it is certainly biologically plausible that the amount of oxygen that you give to patients who have hypoxic respiratory failure might affect their outcomes. So although we're entirely dependent on oxygen to survive, oxygen's a highly reactive chemical. It, you know, it oxidizes lipids, it damages DNA. And, and there's a, you know, a fantastic uh, book about, um, about oxygen and, and the way in which Oxygen, although it's the thing that keeps us alive, it's what gets us in the end. So it contributes to damage that accumulates in our bodies over, over time. And so the notion that oxygen uh, might alter, or at least how liberally you give oxygen, might alter your outcomes um, when, when you're unwell or when you have hypoxic respiratory failure is really very highly plausible. And given how frequently oxygen is used, um, it's really important to understand um, the optimal oxygen regimen if we can. And then when we get down to um, oxygen targets, I mean, some would say, you know, should we be using PA2? Should we be using um, O2 stats uh, or the FIO2? Paul, which targets would you suggest we focus on? Well, you know, I think in a way... Um, I've talked quite a bit about this, and, and I guess the reality is that we actually are using both of these things all the time. So the SpO2 is always the continuously monitored parameter, and um, depending on what happens to the SpO2 at the bedside, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll clearly react. And one of the ways that we might react is to do a, a blood gas, and if we do a blood gas, then we all understand that um, the blood gas tells us about what's actually going on in the patient's arterial blood, and that's what we're ultimately acting on. But in reality, I think that we're, we're acting on both of those parameters all of the time when we're thinking about the targets that we use. And in the end, it probably doesn't make a great deal of difference the way in which you express how you titrate the oxygen because you use both of those things in, in in practice and it's sort of like saying, well, if I ask you to jump on one foot or if I ask you to hop, you'll probably end up doing more or less the same thing. That's a useful analogy. So let's turn to uh, Dr. Asmussen. Um, Paul set the stage for us on why it's important. And as I think in recent uh, news, we've seen the sh effects of shortages of oxygen in India, where we've seen a great shortage of oxygen affecting outcomes in patients with uh, serious illness with COVID. So, Dr. Esmissen, maybe you could set for us, uh, you know, what is the motiv motivation or rationale for conducting your RCT? We started, uh, I think, five years ago, um, 
to, to look into the to the design of, of our RCT and got the idea, and it was based upon uh, the fact that uh, during the last decades, uh, several uh, systematic reviews and meta-analysis have shown that hyperoxia uh, is associated with harm in acutely ill adults. Um, we know that both uh, outside the ICU and, and in the ICU, we have administered uh, oxygen very liberal during many decades because we were afraid of the life-threatening hypoxia. Uh, it seems as if, if many of us, both clinicians and, and nurses, uh, had forgot that um, oxygen is a medicine and we use it uh, just to be sure not to have hypoxia. And by that, we have uh, we have several patients in well, we have several patients in our intensive care unit with very high levels of SpO2 or PO2. Um, so we decided to do this. Um, um, uh, RCT, and uh, we want to do it in patients with acute respiratory uh, failure because we know that these patients are in need of, of oxygen. Uh, and we find that there was a lack of, of evidence uh, in this particular population. Uh, the only target that was uh, used uh, in patients with severe respiratory failure, being the patients with RDS, was the target. Uh, prescribed in the uh, large RDS networks papers uh, of uh, low tidal volume, PEEP, etc. But it was never proven in, in RCTs and, and it has never been written in, in guidelines for, uh, uh, in guidelines of, of uh, acute respiratory failures. So we decided to, to, to do this trial to, to give some evidence to the area of oxygen uh, targeting in patients with uh, acute respiratory failure. So that was the rationale. And, and looking back in my, uh, my own career, I was taught to use as much as oxygen as not as possible, but to avoid this life-threatening oxygen. And it's only during the last decade that I have been very aware about the toxicity and, and harms of, of the high levels of oxygen. So um, we, we made this, um, uh, we designed this trial in 2017 and started uh, in, this, in the summer to 2017 and, and completed the trial within three years. And, and lots have happened during the, the, trials, uh, the trial with the publication of Rocks, Local 2, and other trials. But um, uh, we, we did this trial to, to get more knowledge in the area of oxygen therapy in the ICU. There are definitely benefits and uh, important uh, topic effects to be aware of. So maybe uh, you could describe for us your study methods briefly and how they addressed any limitations of any previous studies. As I said, uh, we were we were interested in patients who had an impaired gas exchange, uh, gas exchange impairment um, in in the lungs, and uh, this differs from other uh, trials in the area. There's only a very few trials. Uh, at the time when we designed, uh, designed the study, we had the uh, Girardi study from Italy, a single center study uh, in ICU patients, and all the, the patients was not uh, the, the only definition of, of being included in the, in the study was that you should be on mechanical ventilation. Um, it was our aim on, uh, also to include only me mechanical ventilated patients, but during the design phase, more and more studies was published uh, showing that high-frequency uh, ventilation, uh, high-flow high um, uh, nasal therapy was uh, used more and more frequently in patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. So we decided to include both patients on mechanical ventilation, but also patients on the own system. And to be sure that the patient had a uh, moderate to severe uh, acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, we defined it as uh, being patients who need at least 10 liters of pure oxygen in an open system or a fraction of inspired oxygen on 50% in, uh, in patients who were intubated. So um, 
So we we only included patients who have we, we could prove that that have um, impaired gas exchange for oxygen, not only uh, and not patients who just need uh, mechanical ventilation. Uh, the other thing is that um, we decided to to use PL2 as a target, uh, and uh, the reason for that is that we want to control for the hyperoxia. Uh, you you if you use the SpO2, you have to define uh, SpO2 below uh, below 100% because you can have a PO2 of 12 or 50 if you use the, the, the higher SpO2 values of 100%. So we want to target the PO2 to be sure that we could control for hyperoxia. And I have discovered that the, the, the reality or the, the clinical setting in, in Scandinavia differs considerably with uh, the, uh, for instance, the US because we have a blood gas analysis bedside, and we know from from cohort studies that we we uh, we each patient had a blood gas blood gas analysis. Uh, I think the mean value is five to six uh, times per day, and it differs from two to to sixteen blood gas analysis per day. So we have the equipment bedside. And what I learned when I presented the study is that in US, you in many ICUs, they only perform one or, or, or a few uh, blood gas analysis in, in, in ICU patients. So, so it was it, we we could only include ICUs where they have blood gas analysis bedside and they use it very frequently. Um, so. That, that was a difference between uh, most of the other studies that have been performed that we use the PO2 as a target. The other thing yeah, is uh, that, we, that we want to 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 um, to control the the PO2 target during the entire uh, ICU stay, and we define that as being up to 90 days uh, after in, inclusion in the trial. So the difference from previous trials was that we only included acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. We used PO2 as a target, and we uh, controlled the PO2 values during the entire ICU stay. Yeah, I think those are pretty important uh, comments, and we'll definitely bring those into the discussion a bit later about the frequency of oxygen monitoring. So let's uh, dive into your key findings. Uh, what were your key findings, and how did you interpret them? And after that, I'll get uh, Paul to jump in and uh, explain to us what, uh, how he interpreted the findings. Uh, Dr. Rasmussen? Well, our hypothesis was that uh, if we target the PO2 of, uh, a PO2 target of 60 millimeters of uh, mercury, we could reduce mortality compared to our standard being a PO2 target of, of 90 millimeters of mercury. Um, and the the primary outcome was uh, all-cause mortality uh, at 90 days, and we did not find any difference in mortality. Uh, the mortality was 42.9 in 60 millimeters mercury group and 42.4 in the uh, in the uh, uh, high oxygenation group. So uh, we found that lower the target by lowering the target. We did not reduce mortality uh, in patients with acute respiratory failure. That was the main target, uh, the main uh, uh, findings. Uh, also, we did uh, we look into the uh, to ischemic, ischemic events. It was uh, intestinal ischemia, myocardial ischemia, and stroke. Uh, and there was no difference between the two groups. So when lowering the target, we did not we did not increase the number of ischemic events. Um, so the right interpretation of the study is that we should keep uh, keep the target of 90 millimeters of mercury because that was our standard of care. However, having the lack of oxygen in mind in, for instance, India, uh, the result of the study 
it could be used to limit, to lower the PaO2 to be able to treat more patients uh, with oxygen uh, because the study also showed us that, of course, we cannot preclude that there's, uh, that there's a possibility of harm or benefit with the lowering the target. But if you are in lack of oxygen, um, it will, the study has knowledge that you uh, can lower the target to, 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 uh, to treat more patients uh, with the limited resources of, of oxygen. Dr. Young, what is your interpretation, and what were the key findings that struck out uh, that, that uh, struck you? Well, I mean, I think for me, um, it's important to think of this as part of a puzzle, and 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 I guess a step towards understanding ultimately what the appropriate oxygen regimen should be for different groups of patients. And I think to begin with. Before this trial was conducted um, and, and also before the ICU ROCKS trial was published, there was data from the Oxygen ICU trial supported by data from a systematic review um, and meta-analysis published in the Lancet called the IOTA systematic review, both of which suggested this possibility that um, usual liberal oxygen therapy might actually be associated with a pretty profound increase in mortality. Um, and so I think the first finding of the study, and this really um, reinforced the finding of the ICU ROCKS trial, was it really doesn't seem at all likely now that in the intensive care unit, either in an all-comers population or in a population with acute respiratory failure, that usual liberal oxygen therapy is profoundly harmful. You know, it doesn't cause lots and lots of people to die. Um, certainly, it doesn't increase your risk of dying by many percentage points. At the same time, in relation to the population of patients with hypoxic respiratory failure, and in particular those patients with ARDS, the LOCO2 trial suggested the possibility that conservative oxygen therapy might actually increase the risk of intestinal ischemia. So maybe conservative oxygen therapy for this population of patients wasn't actually safe. Um, I think that the um, findings from the HOT ICU trial make that very unlikely to be true. They make those findings of increased intestinal ischemia in the LOCO2 trial quite likely to represent um, a statistical anomaly. And so for me, overall, um, the, the findings of the HOT ICU trial should really, I think, restore equipoise about oxygen therapy in the intensive care unit. If you look at the 95% confidence intervals around the point estimate, either in the HOT ICU trial or in all of the oxygen trials in the intensive care unit together and put them, put them uh, together, then you still end up with very wide confidence intervals that encompass the possibility of clinically important benefit or harm. And so at the moment, I don't think we know definitively what the right oxygen regimen is. And I think one of the important limitations of the of the hot ICU trial is that when you start to look at the subgroups, um, the amount of power that you have um, to detect heterogeneity in the subgroups is really, really small, and the potential that some patient groups are benefited while other patient groups are harmed is definitely not excluded from these data. Um, so. You know, I think a degree of reassurance about the safety of what we've been doing for many, many years is one of the things that um, I think you can draw from these data. At the same time, though, um, you can also, I think, uh, say that there's no overt evidence now that conservative oxygen therapy is harmful. And as we've heard, it's very reasonable when faced with um, constraint in terms of supply actually to say 
they have pretty good data now that conservative oxygen therapy isn't going to cause harm. And so if our oxygen supplies are limited, then we should use oxygen conservatively. And I think that that's certainly um, one thing that has proven really relevant for many areas of the world dealing with COVID at the moment. And, and probably from a public health perspective, the most important finding of the hot ICU trial right now. So I want to dive into this issue of subgroup analysis. So, so which subgroups um, would you consider focusing on if you had a situation where there was an oxygen shortage and say, you know what, maybe we need to target um, a lower oxygen? Uh, what findings in the study would support certain subgroups? Well, I mean, I think the problem is the problem is in subgroups that the findings don't really tell you one way or another. So it's possible that liberal oxygen is better for some people and conservative oxygen therapy is better for others, but we don't really have the data to show that for sure at the moment. One of the interesting things that came out of the HOT ICU trial was in comparison to previous studies, um, it didn't really look like conservative oxygen therapy was better for patients who potentially had hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, that is, patients admitted after a cardiac arrest. Now, that's sort of um, interesting, but at the moment, I don't think we have data that are actionable for subgroups. And so I think faced with a situation of constraint in terms of oxygen supply, my interpretation of the data would be that it's reasonable to use conservative oxygen therapy for everybody. Now, that ultimately might not prove to be the truth, but I think that for the moment, based on the data that we have, it's a kind of operative proof. What is your interpretation, Dr. Asmussen? Yeah, I fully agree with, uh, with Paul that uh, the hot ICU is, is uh, only a piece in the puzzle. Uh, and uh, and the uh, the studies in the ICU population is still limited, uh, and uh, I'm I'm very happy to know that that uh, Paul are running the Maker Rocks trial and and the UK Rocks trial just started in in uh, UK uh, because there's so many pieces we still have to to to. Uh, there's so many pieces pieces yes. Uh, but the the interpretation of my study is that that what we show is that targeting a PO2 of either 60 or 90 seems to be uh, seems to show equipoise, and um, what have changed in in uh, in uh, the ICU that that participated in the hot ICU was 35 ICUs in seven countries in Europe is that both the clinician and, and nurses have been very much aware of targeting a PO2. Before that, uh, the PO2 or the SPO2 was was not uh, a focus of, of the treatment, but, but uh, the personnel is aware that oxygen is medicine, and we have used to we have learned to use it uh, properly. Uh, and um, I, I think the the most important Important thing besides the, um, the, um, the the no difference in mortality is that we could not show uh, incre an increased number of ischemic uh, events because during our study the local two, two trial was stopped prematurely because they found they they, should, they found five incidents of intestinal ischemia in the lower target group, which, which was very similar to our lower target. Um, but we, the result in our study shows that it's, uh, it could be a, a statistical uh, uh, error uh, because um, uh, just by chance. Uh, so I think our study shows that the um, severe adverse events um, is probably the same with the two targets. Um, another thing is that um, I think one, it's interesting to look into the subgroup, uh, but as Paul said, uh, we should be very aware of the low number in each subgroup, and it could be by chance. 
But I think the most important subgroup to look into, to further look into, is is the ischemic encephalopathy that Paul is looking in, into, and the result of four studies and nine studies uh, is different. But uh, knowing that the ICU rocks is running and have focus on that group is very important. And other group that is important is the patients with acute respiratory failure who had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and come into the intensive care because um, they were, have also been included in our trial and we have around 500 patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and there's very limited knowledge about the oxygen target in acute respiratory patient, uh, failure in these patients. And the point estimates is below one in our studies. So when you talk with the pulmonologist, uh, they said that uh, you have to, to target low in these patients in the ICU, but we do not know if the low target will do some harms in these patients, particular to the lung tissue with an extra, a higher FeO2 and um, uh, oxidative stress and uh, reabsorption of that, as electrolysis, et cetera. So uh, I, I think the, the, it will be interesting to look into the uh, to the subgroups, but we cannot preclude uh, the, preclude the possibility of harm or benefit. And in either of our subgroups, they are simply too small, but they can be hypothesis generating for, for further studies. So you bring up an interesting issue about the size of the subgroups and. Uh, with COVID, um, there's been a number of important trials that have come out, specifically those trials that have used an adaptive platform design, and they've been able to recruit uh, much larger sample sizes. Uh, Paul, maybe you could comment on that. So I think in your, in your editorial, you had mentioned that maybe we're not seeing a difference because the numbers are too small, but if we were to consider much larger sample sizes with you know smaller differences of 1.5% or 1% mortality difference, we could actually have an effect that we just couldn't detect it. Do you think we should be performing adaptive platform design trials uh, uh, with the uh, with oxygen in mind? Well, I mean, so so we are performing um, the the Megarox trial. So the Megarox trial is a forty thousand patient uh, international trial that's powered to detect that, that difference of one point five percentage points, um, and, and it does. Um, it's more envisaged as sort of a series of very large parallel trials in important subgroups. Um, so patients with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, patients with sepsis and patients with other um, acute brain pathologies all within a 40,000 patient sample size envelope. Um, and uh, that should give us, I think, the power to detect um, if there's no heterogeneity, it should give us the power to detect a 1.5 percentage point difference between groups, or in the event that there's no difference between groups, it should give us 95 percentage, 95% confidence intervals that um, exclude a, an increase or decrease in mortality of one percentage point, which I think. Um, is the kind of difference that we really need to be getting to for a treatment like oxygen, which is, you know, ubiquitous. Um, if you look at hundreds of thousands or millions of patients around the world receiving oxygen therapy in a year, then clearly a difference of that magnitude would have profound public health importance. So, so the Megarox trial is, is underway. Um, it's so far uh, recruiting patients in Canada, New Zealand, um, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, um, Japan, and Pakistan, um, and uh, we're we're looking to increment up the number of sites that we uh, have recruiting patients over the course of this this year. Um, so so I hope that that, that trial will. Um, bring us uh, some more definitive answers about oxygen therapy uh, in the future, although it will still be a few years away.
Yeah, we definitely look forward to the results of those uh, trials. Maybe, um, Dr. Smithson, you can comment on the frequency of monitoring that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. As you mentioned, in the United States, we usually perform blood gas analysis maybe once or twice a day, whereas, as you mentioned, in Europe, it may be up to several, you know, seven or nine times uh, per day. Um, based on your study, are you able to comment on whether or not we should be monitoring it so frequently? Is it okay with doing it just once a day, twice a day? Did, did the study change your practice in any way? Um, no, it didn't change our practice. And, and the fact is that that um, we do this blood gun, uh, the, the equipment and the, uh, the test that you could do by this uh, bedside uh, blood gas analysis uh, equipment has increased, so we use the blood gas analysis for uh, uh, blood glucose, uh, uh, electrolytes, uh, uh, bilirubin, um, lactate. Uh, so, so it, it's not only used for for measuring the uh, the PaO2 or uh, SaO2 or, or bicarbonate. So, so I think it, it hasn't changed our practice. Um, um, I I think the most important parameter to to uh, to secure that you you have the right target for the patient is the SpO2 when you are doing this trials uh, because uh, it is a continuously measured parameter. Uh, but um, what we have learned is that the SpO2 can differ from the SaO2, so you have to do the blood gas uh, test uh, frequently, and, and what frequently is in that perspective is different to say, but if you have a change in the patient's condition or you uh, you have to test for the blood gas analysis. And what is important is that uh, as uh, there was publication, and I think Paul mentioned it uh, during the review of the, the hot ICU, is that if you have black skin people, uh, the SPPO2 is not reliable, and there can be a difference in SPO2 and SAO2 of up to 5%, and unfortunately in the wrong direction, meaning that uh, black people can have black skin people can have a SPO2 of 95 and the SAO2 is 90. And we have just seen it in one of our COVID patients, uh, a patient from uh, Ghana, uh, with exactly 5% difference in the SAO2 and SPO2. So I think what uh, what uh, our trials show is that it is important to to, to do this blood gas analysis frequently, and in, in particular in patients who get deteriorated in the in, in the respiratory function. Um, so it hasn't changed anything for us, but uh, but uh, it, it is predominantly due to the fact that we use the blood gas analysis uh, data for so many other different uh, measurements. Well, maybe you could comment on that as well. It's very important that we have accurate um, uh, results that we can act on them appropriately. But there's also this issue of differences that occur across uh, skin pigmentation. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting, and and I think one of the things that makes it sort of interesting in my mind is actually at the end of the hot ICU trial. Um, when you combine the hot ICU trial data with uh, the other data, you're sort of left with a position of saying, actually, outcomes are broadly similar across a very very wide range, actually, of PaO2 values. Um, and so knowing that the outcomes are broadly similar, um, you know, and it sort of remains to be seen how clinically important, actually, um, the inaccuracy is in terms of patient important outcomes. So while it might be that an SpO2 of, you know, let's take a, an extreme case and say an SpO2 of 90 represents a, an, actual SP, an, an actual SAO2 of 85, 
we, we don't actually know that, that, that targeting that level is bad or will result in patient important outcomes being worse. Um, and so one of the things that we've recently decided to do as a, as a management committee in the Megarox trial is for the patients that we, well, once we've made the amendment, we're going to collect information on people's skin pigmentation at baseline so that we can test whether the oxygen targets that are implemented, um, uh, whether the, the appropriate target to use when you're using a pulse oximeter or, or the, you know, the clinical outcome that results is different depending on what the patient's skin tone is. You know, we've known for a very long time, actually, that um, that pulse oximeters didn't uh, work um, as accurately in people with dark skin pigmentation. That that's something that's been reported for for decades. Um, how that translates into patient outcomes is is uncertain, and in a way, the data from the hot ICU trial. Um, you'd have to say decrease the probability that those inaccuracies in pulse oximetry convert into important differences in patient outcomes. That would be my opinion. Um, but as I say, it's uh, only the operative truth and, and we may find when we get more data that it does matter. Yeah, we definitely need more uh, the data in that regard. Um, maybe you could comment also on co-interventions. Uh, in the ICU, we in in the study they were uh, targeting an um, an oxygen range, um, but we also instituted another other interventions such as PEEP, um, such as flow in those patients receiving high flow. How do you tease apart whether that's um, causing any problems, whether ARDS or lung injury is affecting outcomes. Um, I'll ask Dr. Etmusen first to answer that, and then I'll turn to um, Dr. Young. Uh, first of all, uh, our study was a, a pragmatic trial, so it means that when we uh, uh, we asked the read uh, the uh, the sites to to vary the FiO2 to achieve the PaO2. So all the other um, treatment, all the other uh, ventilator settings was on the discretion of, of the clinicians. Um, we did, we, we stratified by sites, and um, uh, so we, the, our purpose was to have uh, the same strategies uh, for, for both Groups, uh, meaning that the, the 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 treatment for each side was equal in both uh, patient groups. Um, we have the problem with RDS. It, our trial was not an RDS uh, trial, and um, uh, it was a, a study in patients with acute respiratory failure. Um, the what we found was that patients had a very low PA-FiO2 ratio. It was below 120 millimeters of mercury, uh, and part of the patient had uh, even uh, a PO2 even below 100. So, so probably a lot of these patients had RDS, but uh, and also patients with with um, with. Uh, high flow system at baseline, but the definition for RDS is that you have to have, have a, a positive pressure ventilation. So, so we could not define, uh, we could, the diagnosis for RDS is, uh, is not part of the study because we included open systems. But the patient had severely, uh, hypo really, uh, severely hypoxic. Yes, yeah, so, so my, my comment uh, would be Similar, actually, there was. I mean, co-interventions co are an important thing to consider in any study when you're interpreting it, and there really was not a lot of data to show any sort of suggestion, actually, that anything was different um, in a systematic way other than the randomised treatment. Um, the peak was really similar. 
all of the other treatment that the patients received other than oxygen therapy looked like it was very similar between groups as well. Um, and actually, um, in relation to the PEEP, this is, an, this is an important point of difference from the LOCO2 trial because in the LOCO2 trial, um, there actually was um, the amount of PEEP was coupled to the amount of FiO2 in the way it is in the ARDSnet tables. Um, and so that meant that there were systematic differences in both PEEP and an FiO2 between two between the two groups, which when you're interpreting the experiment makes it more difficult to tease apart what the oxygen effects are and what the PEEP effects are. That really wasn't a problem with this study. Um, and actually I think that the chances are that co-intervention is an important um, confounding variable, if you like, in the interpretation of the hot ICU trial data is pretty low. That's good to hear. Um, so Dr. Young, maybe you could review any of the key limitations that you encountered when reading uh, the paper and that our audience should be aware of. Well, I mean, I think we, we've sort of talked about those things. I mean, I think for people who are using blood gases um, infrequently, generalizability of the of the approach is is a limitation but I as I sort of said in, in response to your earlier question I, I think in a way that limitations may be uh, been overstated because it is really sort of similar to asking people to jump on one foot or asking them to hop um, you know it's still affecting the amount of oxygen people are getting and they're still either getting a bit more or a bit less um, and the other thing really which which is a, a limitation is that the trial really only excluded a very, very large mortality effect um, that for um, oxygen therapy, in my mind, would have been a surprisingly large effect if it had been present. Um, but, but despite those limitations, there's no doubt that the hot ICU trial is the best data out there right now for working out what the appropriate oxygen dose is um, for patients with hypoxic respiratory failure in the intensive care unit and maybe even more broadly than that. That's important to know. Um, so how does your study advance the research and clinical practice, uh, Dr. Smithson? Um, what can a person who reads your study walk away saying, you know what, I can do this for my clinical patients? So I think this study also highlights the fact that oxygen is a medicine. You have to prescribe it. You have to define every single day when you do the round in the ICU what the level of oxygen target should be, how to target in specific uh, subgroups we do not yet know, but uh, we will hopefully get this information in a couple of years when the Megarox trial will provide us with more data on this subject. Yeah, we're definitely looking forward to that data. Um, Dr. Young, what was your um, the key takeaway findings in terms of future research and uh, clinical practice? Well, well, I mean, I think, you know, before the study was published, we were already uh, planning uh, the Megarox trial. And so I was uh, pleasantly surprised to see, I guess, the degree to which the uh, findings of the hot ICU trial um, helped restore equipoise and oxygen therapy. Um, and, and I think, um, well, at least in the range of targets that we're sort of evaluating in the Megarox trial. I think, as I've said already, the most important take-home public health message for right now is that if you're working in an environment where oxygen is constrained, it's very reasonable to uh, adopt a conservative strategy so that the oxygen can be used uh, for a greater number of patients in, in need. Um, outside of that setting, I, I don't see a strong... Um, impetus for implementing conservative oxygen therapy based on the existing data, um, but I do still believe that uh, 
it's entirely biologically plausible that the dose of oxygen matters and that we will ultimately uh, find out that one strategy or another um, is better for patients in particular situations. So I think it's still a lot, very much a, a live um, live issue and, and one where people shouldn't uh, be left with a take-home message of thinking that we know the answer because I, I don't think we, we're in that position yet. So to push the envelope a little bit here, so in this study they compared 90 versus 60. Some may ask, you know, why not go lower? I mean, yes, there's uh, preliminary data that suggests that the cutoff of 60 should be okay, but some may argue, you know, why not 50 or um, 45? What would your response to that be? Uh, it has been discussed for many years how how low could we go. Uh, I think what is important now is that we have looked at mortality as the primary outcome, but we also have to focus on of those who survived. Because when you administer oxygen, you give it through the lung tissue, and we don't. We, there's some studies showing that with an increased FiO2, uh, you will damage more uh, lung tissue, and with a a low PaO2, you can get some cognitive dysfunction uh, uh, on the long-term settings. So I think it's important to look into the long-term outcomes in survivors to to see if if two different oxygen targets, uh, the risk of the two different oxygen targets, specifically focusing on the pulmonary function and the cognitive dysfunction. So I think before going further down in PO2 targets, we need to have some data uh, on uh, the long-term outcomes. That's a pretty important insight. Um, Dr. Young? Yeah, I mean, we we did evaluate cognitive outcomes in the patients who were included in ICU rocks, and, and there was not really any suggestion that there was a difference uh, in that across the range of targets that we evaluated. Um, you know, I guess um, one of the things that I've struggled with is um, it's quite easy to make an argument in my mind that um, exposing the body, exposing the tissues to higher amounts of oxygen than normal might be bad because it induces oxidative stress. Um, um, impugning a, a, you know, imputing a sort of benefit from actually targeting a lower level of oxygen than we account in our normal physiology when we're acutely unwell, um, I find that a li less uh, less believable, actually. You know, actually, um, the only tissue that would be being exposed to um, more oxygen than usual, potentially, if you were targeting hypoxemia, um, would be the lung. And so you would have to be getting a benefit from reducing the exposure that the, of oxygen to the lung um, that was greater than any detriment that you would receive by making all of the other cells and tissues of the body operate in an environment where they're getting less oxygen than they do in health. Um, and so for me, the, the rationale for trying to go lower than normal um, isn't so strong. Um, we know from the retrospective observational studies that hypoxemia is associated with harm. Um, there aren't any studies where it looks like the nadir of risk is in the hypoxemic range. Um, and so for me, I, I think uh, it would be quite hard to um, adopt uh, a hypoxemia type strategy as as um, the intervention to evaluate for now. 
Um, you know, another thing that that is interesting as well in terms of actually trying to achieve that is one thing that we found, and I think was found in the hot ICU trial as well, is that um, it's not actually that uncommon to end up in a situation when you titrate the patients down to 21% oxygen. If the patients are breathing 21% oxygen and their PaO2 is above the target, there's nothing you can do to make it lower than that without giving them hypoxic gas mixtures. And I don't think anyone thinks that would be a particularly good strategy. Agree. Um, and then in terms of the effects on the right ventricle, there's uh, increasing data to show that um, hypoxemia acidosis uh, does cause uh, pulmonary vasoconstriction and places a lot of extra strain on the right side of the heart. Was there any data that came out of your study to um, uh, support that or to uh, add weight to that, uh, Dr. Rasmussen? Uh, no, absolutely not. Um, and I, uh, uh, we have not any data that could support uh, that um, that hypoxia will induce uh, right ventricle uh, ventricle dysfunction. Um, and I think I think you have to go low. Uh, in my opinion, it's not with, with 60 millimeters of mercury. Uh, uh, you have to go further down before you you see that, and um, uh, you get uh, in patients who are targeted. Uh, we target in the lower oxygenation target group with 60 millimeters of mercury. Uh, the FiO2 is in, in the earliest uh, in the in, just after randomization. We have a, a high FiO2 to achieve the PaO2 of 60. So I think the, the high FeO2 will induce vasodilatation in the lungs. Uh, there's a lot, uh, we do not know the, the right path of physiology and physiology in the lungs, but when, when you have a high FeO2 in the lungs, you will have that vasodilatation. So I don't think in this, these patients we, we will have uh, important right ventricular dysfunction. Um, um, but, but I, I really don't know, but um, I think you have to go further down and you have to probably have patients uh, with less, FI, uh, less amount of FIO2 in the alveoli. Uh, thank you both for joining us. I really appreciate your insights and I uh, wish you all the best uh, for all your future collaborative works. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us on. Yes, thank you very much. A big thank you to Drs. Rasmussen and Young. And a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.